Well, I do have a message this morning that I believe God has put on my heart for today. And uh, if, you know, it gets to be 1.30 and you have to leave, then wait till, <laughs> wait till we bow our heads and then you can leave. Nobody will notice that it's you uh, leaving out. But I want us to look at a passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 40. If you're in England today, that would be pronounced Isaiah. But in the United States, it's Isaiah. And I want us to read through the entire chapter, and I want to take time along the way to make some comments on the text. And then following the reading and some of the comments on the text, I want to share with you three brief, and I do mean brief, points that I believe we see in this text that will help us out, okay? Now, there's a word that this message is all based on, but you won't find that word in this text. It's implied and it's many places elsewhere in Scripture. So let me give you this word. If you make notes, and I know the notes are a little thin this week, uh, but if you make notes in your Bible or make notes on the back of your bulletin, here's, here's what I want you to write down. The word is hope, H-O-P-E, hope. That's what it's all about. And I want to give you the biblical definition of the word hope. Now, I've tried to do this along the way over the years, and it surprises me how few people really understand this word hope, even though I've tried to explain it many times. People just somehow they don't get it. So here's what it means. Confident expectation. Confident expectation. Hoping is not wishing. There's a big difference. Somebody wishes something to be true, they want it to be true, they really do want it to be true, but they have no expectation that it will be true. Hope is something you're confident is going to happen. And unfortunately, in our English language, we use the word hope as though it was a wish, and we have really lost the meaning of the word hope. Let me give you an example, classic example. You're talking to the student who's just finished taking his final exam in a particular class, and you say to the student, how do you think you did on your finals? Do you think you're going to pass the class? Well, boy, I, I sure hope so. What do you think? Is there much confidence in that? Take another student. How do you think you did on your final exam? You're going to pass the class? I hope so. Yeah, I hope, hope it's like an A+. Plus. What do you think? There's a difference, okay? Now, here's the point. Christmas is about hope. In fact, one of my pastor friends some years ago was talking with some of us, and he said, you know, I think the main product of our church, if you could say that the church has a product they're selling, and there's one main product we're selling, it is hope. Hope, okay? Okay. Keep that in mind, if you will. That's what this sermon is really all about. So let's look at our text, and I just kind of want to comment on some of it. And if you mark in your Bibles, this may be helpful to you along the way, because this is not an easy text to understand, okay? Not an easy text. Comfort, comfort my people, says our God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, I'm going to confuse you. These words were written in the middle of the 8th century B.C. That is, in the middle, the 700s. Somewhere, let's say, around 750. However, they were written for an event 
that was going to take place closer to the beginning of the 5th century B.C. Wait a minute now. Mid-7th, mid-8th century, 700s, back into the late uh, 500s, early 400s. What's going on here? God is giving this prophet, Isaiah, a message for people way, way, way down the road. So between when he's writing this and saying this, and when these events take place, and then what he's prophesying takes place, they're going to be able to say, you know, this is a terrible thing we're going through, this is an awful thing we're going through, but God said through Isaiah, it's going to happen, and it's going to turn out okay. So what was he talking about? He was talking about the fall, the destruction of the nation known as Judah. Now, there were two nations. They divided at one point from one nation known as Israel into two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Both of those nations abandoned God, forgot about God, walked away from God. And both of them, politically, militarily, spiritually, morally, any way you want to talk about it, they failed miserably, fell flat on their faces. These were God's people, Jewish people, but because they abandoned God, God allowed them to fall as a way of teaching them they need Him. The first nation, Israel, fell in the year 722 B.C. And the Assyrians completely destroyed the nation. They tore down the capital city, Samaria. They tore down their worship center. They destroyed many of the people, killing many of the people, took many of them away as slaves in captivity. That wasn't enough because the southern kingdom, Judah, continued in their ways of rebellion. And so it was in the year 586, considered now 722 to 586, that Judah fell. And Judah was the place where Jerusalem was the capital. The temple of God was there. And the people kept saying, no, no, God is never going to abandon Jerusalem. God is never going to let his temple fall. But the prophets kept preaching, you have abandoned God's laws. You have abandoned truthfulness and integrity and, in, and justice. And God is going to bring punishment and he's going to destroy this nation if you fail to repent and change your ways. Well, the people didn't repent. They didn't change their ways. The nation was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. It started back in the early, uh, late 600s when Nebuchadnezzar began taking some people captive away from the nation. And ultimately, when the people refused even to obey their landlord, he came in and destroyed the walls of Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple. He took away all the gold and all the silver. He killed literally tens, hundreds of thousands of people and took tens of thousands captive. Now, here's what Isaiah says. 200 years earlier, comfort, comfort my people. Why? Because you're going to be destroyed. Your life's going to be over. This nation is going to fall in such a way that you never, ever dreamed in your worst nightmare it could happen, but it's going to happen. And you need to remember this. My people will rise again. I will restore them. I will bring them back. That's hope. That's hope. God is saying, here is the foundation, the basis of your hope in me. I am promising now, hundreds of years early, when this happens, it's not the end. Now, some of you are going through some difficult times in your life right now. I've never seen a time in the church when people weren't going through some difficult times. Some of you have been through difficult times. Some of you are going into difficult times. Some of us may think we're never going to have difficult times. You're fooling yourself. They're coming, aren't they? We just don't know when. 
And so the message today is God has a hope for you regardless of the difficulties you're facing. Look at the next set of verses from verse 3 on down through verse 8. Here is kind of a, the final picture that God is going to do ultimately. This is one of the things also that brings us hope. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Anybody remind, that remind you of John the Baptist? That, that's really what John the Baptist is all about. That's what Jesus meant when uh, they talked about John the Baptist in John's gospel. Verse 4, every valley will be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be leveled, the uneven ground will become smooth, and the rough places a plain. What's that all about? It's not about building highways. It's about justice. It's about the time when God promises, I will have every valley filled. There won't be any place that's low down. I will make every hill, every mountain level. There won't be any places that you have to really high, reach high for and climb for. I'm going to bring absolute justice in the world. Reason for hope. Verse 5. And the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry out? Here's what you cry out. All humanity is grass and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and when the breath of the Lord blows on them, indeed the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Here again, God is saying, though things look bad, though all these things are going to happen, Keep in mind, I'm God. I'm going to give you a reason for hope. Now, in verses 9 through the rest, most of the rest of this chapter, he gives us some of the reasons why we can trust in God. Let's, let's read through that. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain, Jerusalem. Herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him, and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on the scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or gave him counsel? Who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon's cedars are not enough for fuel or its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are considered by him as empty nothingness. With whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up? For a comparison with him. An idol, something that has a smelter that's cast, a smelter casts and a metal worker plates with gold and makes for chain, silver chains for? In other words, who do you have to compare with God? What, what do you have other than him who's going to give you any hope? Do you hope in wisdom? Do you hope in your own ability to figure things out? Do you hope in your own desire for your own pleasures to do whatever you feel like is good? Is that what's going to give you hope? Verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. 
Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. They are barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground when he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. Look up and see. Who created these? He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon who overran Israel, uh, who overran Judah, who took away captive tens of thousands of Jews, who destroyed the temple, who brought all the gold and silver and all the precious things out of the temple to his own treasury in Babylon, that guy did not have hope in God. What does he have hope in? He had hope in Nebuchadnezzar. He said, what do I need that God for? I've got all the silver. I've got all the gold. I've got all the army. I've got everything I'll ever need. Why do I need God? And there are people today who feel the same way. I don't need God. But Nebuchadnezzar died and was judged and received his eternal recompense by the God who created everything the God who is in charge of all things. Now, here's the conclusion of it, beginning at verse 27. Jacob, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my claim is ignored by my God. In other words, God doesn't care. He doesn't bother about me. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary and young men stumble and fall. Here it is. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, give us understanding to know your ways, to know your word. And give us the courage to turn our backs on the world and turn our backs on our own desires and pleasures that we may follow you and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may know the name of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl, as a youngster, was taken captive during World War II and was placed in a concentration camp because he was Jewish. And throughout that miserable time during those years he spent in a concentration camp, he saw untold numbers of people die. Not all of them died in the ovens or the firing squads or even by illness. After the war, Frankel became a psychiatrist and he began to question and wonder, why did some live and some die? Now, you put a bullet in your head, that's a pretty good reason to die, I guess. But of those who didn't get killed, murdered, of those who weren't tortured to death or burned in the ovens, why did some make it and some not make it? He came up with this conclusion. From his own experience, he discovered those who made it, those who survived, had something to live for after the war. They had a family, perhaps, who weren't in prison. They had a business. They had a profession. They had a job. They had something. And we call that hope. Confident expectation that something's there. I'm confident that if I can make it through this, if I can keep going through this, something will be there 
And I have this hope, and it keeps me going. When the astronaut program was just getting underway during President Kennedy's term, and we were beginning to train men to go to the outer space, there was a requirement that you may not remember. Maybe you didn't even know this. But in the first batch, at least, of astronauts, and maybe for some time to come, I don't know the details, every person who applied to be an astronaut had to be a married person. Isn't that weird? You know, today we would, we would call that, you know, bigotry. Only married people can be at, wow. But there's a reason for it. They reasoned in those days correctly that a married person would have a bigger incentive to come back to the earth and to try harder and to work more diligently to make it so than a person who wasn't married. You have something waiting at the end of the trip. There's hope. Can you understand how important hope is? When a person loses hope, when a person loses that thing that they live for, they have no reason to live. Now, when I read about the astronauts only, you know, choosing those who are married because they had more to come back to, I thought, well, maybe some marriages are, <laughs> but uh, hopefully all of them are. But let me give you three points if you uh, follow along on the screen. I think they might even be printed in your bulletin. There is, first of all, our great need for hope. Our great need for hope. You may not believe this today, especially if you're below the age of 30. But you need God's hope. You really do. I mean, when I wasn't 30 yet and I was younger, I knew about everything there was to know. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I hadn't been through seminary yet, but I'd finished college, and I was a preacher, and I, I just knew everything. Well, you asked me a question. I mean, we didn't have kids, but I knew how to raise kids. There was a couple in our church where I was the first pastor, uh, my first pastorate, and they were, she and he were good friends of Libby and me, and, and I'd known him since, you know, he was a teenager, and, and they started having their family, and, and I just knew, man, she was doing this wrong, and he was doing that wrong. How is it that when we're young, we know so much? And then we get a little older, we don't know anything. It's because we don't recognize the need for hope. In our youth and our affluence and our abilities to do many things for ourselves, we don't recognize we need God. We think we can do it. We think we have what it takes to do whatever needs to be done. God, just give me a half a chance and I'll do it. Amen? Yeah. How many of you are Clemson fans? Can I see your hands raised up? Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. How many of you expected Clemson to win yesterday? How many of you? That's hope. That's hope. You didn't wish they would win, right? Now, there are some people named Josh who had a wish that Wisconsin was going to beat Ohio State. That was not hope. That was just a wish. You know, he wanted it to be true. But no matter how much you want something to be true, unless it's based on something that's more than just a wish, it's not going to happen. I watched a lot of that game, and I thought for a while they're going to pull it out. Not so. And some of you have a wish that your life's going to be okay. You really don't need God. You can drop in and out of God's presence whenever you want. You can pray when you want. You can go to church when you want, or you can take it or leave. You don't, you don't need that stuff. You've got your own life to live. You're smart. You've got resources. You've got health. 
Your hope is in you. But one day, sooner or later, you're going to realize that hope doesn't come through. You're going to realize that hope is hollow. That hope is empty. And you need something more than just that. You see it all the time in the newspaper. Companies rise and fall. Some guy makes an invention. He invents a process. He invents a product. He starts making it. He starts selling it. And his company grows and grows and grows. And he becomes wealthy and important and famous. And when he speaks, people listen. He doesn't need God. He has hope, but it's in his product because he's saying, this thing has sold and it sells and it keeps on selling and I'll just be fixed forever. One day he goes to his doctor and this mysterious little cough is full-fledged cancer. Where's his hope then? I mean, how many widgets can you sell to get enough money to buy away cancer, to pay for cancer, to get rid of cancer? doesn't happen, does it? Like one of our former politicians here in South Carolina once said to me, he said, Preacher, I look in the newspaper every day and I read where some people are dying that have never died before. <laughs> I thought, wow, you must be a politician from South Carolina. We have some of the best politicians money can buy in our state. But you see, it's not all about what I can control because if I can control it, I won't need God ever but I can't control cancer. I can't control how many people are going to die in two burning towers that we had no idea were going to be destroyed in a day. Right? We need hope. First point. Second point. Second point. Not only do we need hope, but we need a hope that is guaranteed. A hope that is guaranteed. I want you to picture in your mind something that you may not be able to fully understand, but try to picture it anyway. Have you ever been in a garbage dump? Some of you have been. Landfill. As a kid, it was a real treat when my dad or a neighbor would take some of us boys to the garbage dump in our town and our, our 22 rifles, and we would go out there and shoot rats. That may not be much, much fun to you, but that was fun to me. You know, I like to shoot guns, and I had a 22 rifle. I got it for Christmas the year I was 11. And uh, once in a while, one of them would take us. And you had to go just about dusk because the rats wouldn't come out in the daytime if they, if they heard you around. But when it began to get dark, you could leave your car lights on, and those rats would run around. You could take your rifle, and if you were a good shot, you could pick them off. Can you imagine a garbage dump larger than three or four times the geographical area of the city of Hanahan. Can you imagine that? That's hard to imagine, isn't it? They exist. In fact, in India, and other places I'm sure, but I know this to be true in India, there are whole families who live their whole lives in a garbage dump. They sleep there, they eat there, Whatever training or schooling the kids get, they get it in the garbage dump. They live in that garbage dump. And day after day after day, they search for something to eat. They search for something they can use for shelter. They search for something they can use to sell, to get a little bit of cash. Their whole life is in that garbage dump. Can you imagine what would bring hope to their lives? Now, I have some missionary friends who live in India. 
None of them, as far as I know, live in a garbage dump. <laughs> but you know what they believe? They believe that what these people who live in the garbage dump need is not more education. Though that's a great need. That's not their main need. They don't believe these people who live in the garbage dump should be slumdog millionaires, and that would solve all their problems. I don't know what they believe is this. If they could introduce Jesus Christ to these people and these people to Jesus Christ, and if they could help them understand the gospel, offer them the gospel, and they believe it and receive it, they will have everlasting hope. And it really won't matter if they live in a garbage dump or a mansion because their hope is fixed on something that can't be changed in time. Anything else can be changed. I mean, ask Jed Clampett, right? Some of you know Jed. He lived in the hillbillies, uh, towns of West Virginia, and he found oil and moved out to Beverly Hills, and his whole life changed. But Jed never did change, did he? You can take the people out of the slums, but you can't take the slums out of people unless there's something that replaces their heart. And that's all about the gospel of Jesus. And so whatever it is you're expecting at Christmas time to make you happy, it may for a day or even longer, but it won't give you hope unless it's Jesus. Here's the third point. What is the guarantee of our hope? What is the guarantee of our hope? Let me ask you this question. How far can you see? I've had pretty good vision most of my life. Some years ago, uh, while I was living in Hanahan before, I woke up one morning and my arms had become too short. Any of y'all had that experience? My arms were so short that I could no longer read the newspaper. (laughs) And my vision started fading, but it was only for reading, you know. I still have pretty good vision at a distance. And though I never won any medals or sharpshooting contests, I was always a pretty good shot with a rifle. Because I could see a long ways down. How far can you see? Let's say you're in a football field. You know, football field's 100 yards long. If you've ever been to a football game, you kind of understand how long 100 yards is. Let's just say I was standing at one end of the football field, and I was holding up a card out of a deck of playing cards, and you were at the other end. You didn't have any scopes or telecommunications or any any kind of a help. Could you read what was on that card? I couldn't. I got pretty good vision. Most of us could. Maybe Superman can, but not me. How far can you see till tomorrow? Can you see next year? I mean, a year before Libby and I moved from West Virginia to South Carolina, I couldn't see ever living in South Carolina. Not that it was a bad place. We'd come here to visit my parents about two or three times a year, and we loved to come visit, go to the beach. But God has a way of giving us vision beyond our own ability. Let me ask you this. Can you see your own death? Can you see it coming? It would be a horrible thing, wouldn't it? Maybe some of you are there now. Maybe you've got a disease, an illness. You see death coming. What gives you hope to face that? Do you have hope that you'll get cured some way, that there's a cure coming? I, I have hope that one day, not hope, I have, I have a wish that one day they'll cure, Parkin, cure Parkinson's disease. You all know my wife's suffering with Parkinson's, and she doesn't have it as bad as a lot of people I've seen. 
But boy, it just breaks my heart when I see her fall down on the floor because she can't stand up on her own. That's hard, isn't it? Some of you know what those things are like. How far can you see when you look into the future and you think about what things are going to be and how things... If you don't have hope in Jesus Christ, you can see about that far. And what you can see isn't very pretty. Isn't very pretty. When you think about hope, what is your hope really in? What, what do you really have that's the foundation of confidence for the future? Let me give you a couple of samples. Some people believe and have hope in the idea of fairness. I believe God is fair. I, I remember this little saying from years ago, God is good and God is fair. He gave some brains, he gave others hair. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's about the goodness of hair, right? <laughs> what, what hope do you have? Somebody says, well, I, I believe God is fair. Yeah, if you want fair, go out to the exchange fairgrounds about <laughs> once a year. They have a wonderful fair. Is God fair? He is. But listen, God's fairness is not based on your adjudication of your circumstances. It's based on the absolute right or wrong of God's law. Well, I believe God's an understanding God. How could God punish these people who never... Who, so you're, you're trying to make up your own rules of fairness. If, you're, if your hope is that God is fair and one day he'll understand, you're basing your hope on your own desires and on the, not on the absolute truth of God's word. God is loving. And God is absolutely fair. Absolutely fair. The Bible says the soul that sinneth it shall die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's fair. Right? That's fair. And if God is at all fair about our sinfulness, then what hope do we ever have? Because of the grace and the mercy that Christmas brings. That God sent his son into the world to die for our sins, that we can be forgiven, and that we can have the Holy Spirit planted in us, and we can have that everlasting hope.